0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Nate Greenberg, Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of the Arabic Studies Program at George Mason University, who is here to talk about his book, How Information Warfare Shaped the Arab Spring The Politics of Narrative in Tunisia and Egypt. Nate, welcome and thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, Marcy. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm um I'm really curious how you started. How did how did you get interested in this topic? So can you um share with our listeners a little bit about your professional um and educational background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the backstory with this book is um I would say it's unusual. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's about a revolution. And so it sort of happened by chance. Um, You know, I was, I was in Egypt um, in 2010, 2011, um, doing research actually on the 1952 revolution in Egypt. Um, And I was part of my dissertation and looking at, uh, I was looking at sort of cinematic responses to the 1952 revolution the work of the uh, Egyptian Nobel laureate Naguib Mahfouz, um, in particular, and uh, I was—I had an apartment in um, downtown Cairo. I often joke with uh, some of my Egyptian friends. I was living in a neighborhood called La Zogli, which is a kind of a synonym for the uh, uh, Ministry of Interior, <clears throat> which is uh, in that neighborhood and sort of associated with. A, a, a massive detention system, you know, so it's kind of a, a running joke, but, um, but I was living at, So this neighborhood is also like three blocks from Tahrir square. And, uh, so a couple, a couple weeks after I got there, well, no, about a month after I was living there, things started to bubble up in Tunisia and, uh, you know, nobody thought that it was going to, um, sort of spill over into the, into the great event known as the Arab spring. Um, but you know, following the news, watching the news and, uh, sure enough on the 25th of January, um, which was, uh, which is police day in Egypt, um, demonstrators take to the streets and it, uh, you know, it set in motion for me really, uh, a 10 year process of, um, going back, trying to understand, uh, the events and the rhetoric that shaped the, uh, the opening of the Arab uprisings. So, um, you know, my, I mean, my interest has always been in, um, kind of, uh, literary and rhetorical response to lived phenomena. I'm sort of a trained in the Marxist humanitarian tradition, trying to understand the relationship between, um, Mm -hmm reality on the ground phenomena events on the ground as they unfold and how writers artists politicians journalists um talk about it and narrate it um so it's always i've always been interested in the kind of this kind of thematic that traverses through the book but the core subject of the book being the uprising itself um you know for me and for for many of us really kind of fell out of the sky as it were um
0: yeah. That's super yeah. interesting. I was, I was very curious as I was reading like, cause I see a lot of the photos are your photos. Um, yes. yeah. yeah. So I was, I was like, I definitely have to, we definitely have to chat about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, I, the, yeah, the photo the photos are interesting and we can get back into it later, but yeah, the, the cover photo that shows, um, so guys, uh, two guys, you know, pinning the arm of a, of a third guy, um, actually kind of illustrates the whole theme of the book, which is, I guess, you know, we'll get into it, but basically how information trickles down into this kind of interpersonal lived experiences. Um, I titled that photo vigilantes and you know, that's, uh, I have to say, I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to focus our minds, uh, on, on something from 20 years ago, but, when there's an uprising in our own nation's capital, it helps. So I, I would definitely have to tie that in at some point here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that you make a good point in in looking at um, I think it's really fascinating where you're talking about the the construction of narrative and the constructive of, of narrative and how that completely it can completely derail from reality in in what actually happened and because Arab Spring is so often seen as like the social media revolution. Right. or revolution that started through social media. Right. Um, and you know, we're we're right uh, at that that 10 year mark. So it's um it's it's kind of interesting to, to to think about this uh, you know a decade in, in the future. So perhaps we should start um and I don't know if this makes sense to you, but maybe we can start with how is looking at the Arab Spring, like contextualizing the Arab Spring as quote, most people know it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, So, you know, I think the prevailing line uh, now in academia and and in in journalism, I think we see as well in the media, um, has been this notion of, you know, the Arab spring begetting an Arab winter, um, title of Noah Feldman's recent book to that effect. And, uh, you know, this notion that, you know, the, the, the big push for democracy, which was um spurned by uh social media in part um kind of created an opening for chaos uh in most parts of of the arab world you know with the possible exception of tunisia uh this is you know so goes uh, so goes the the prevailing i think narrative on on the arab uprisings of 2010-2011 um one of the points that I make in this book was that, you know, from my perspective, uh, living in downtown Cairo, and I ended up writing about uh, the opening the first two weeks um, for the Seattle Times, first the Seattle Globe list, the editors there, and then they uh, put me on to the Seattle Times uh, was, you know, it was from the very beginning. I mean, it was never it was like the it was it was sort of chaos from the beginning. And, uh, there was no, I think that this idea that, um, that the Arab uprisings had sort of like suddenly magically, um, you know, overthrown decades of dictatorship and all this, you know, that it was this, uh, the Facebook revolution, this idea, um, I I was really seeing a lot more complexity from, from the beginning, um, yeah. I, so I, I, I think in some respects, you know, to answer your question, I still to this day, I think the the big prevailing notion has been, um, that, you know, the uprisings were fueled by social media. And I think that that is true to a degree. Um, but that the, the circumstances, uh, in the region, um, you know, you even see from the kind of more, let's say, uh, uh say sort of um, cynical perspective among academics is that, you know, the region was not, was never ready for democracy, uh, was never ready for this kind of, you know, grand democratizing experiment. And, uh, so it set in motion, you know, the kind of chaotic events of civil war in Syria and Libya and Yemen, the rise of ISIS and so forth. Um, now that that not not that I would dispute that, but again, but I sort of I'm interested in, in more of the uh, the fine details of history, I guess, than, the, than these big um, than the grand sweep. Um, so and I think to chal- also to challenge it a bit further, I would I would just say that um, one of the points I try and make in this book is that I think from the very, from the very beginning, frankly, it, it's hard to say that it was successful. Um, But in the case of Egypt, uh, and one of the arguments that I make is that one of the main reasons I think that the revolution um, sort of unraveled and some of the founding principles of what the revolutionaries, the early revolutionaries were trying to achieve uh, was unraveled in part by this very sophisticated counter communications and counter narrative campaign, counter revolutionary campaign campaign. Um, that was also churning through the information ecos- uh, ecosystem at the time.
0: I think there's also a lot of the context that seems to be missing and kind of what you'd mentioned, like the grand sweeping narrative, that these countries are all different. Right. And they had different access to social media and they used the social media differently. And it was used for both sides, from what I understand.
1: Yeah. yeah
0: um, and so, yes, you have a lot of these, you know, nuances In how it was done. So just kind of creating this, this grand narrative of like, you know, Facebook and you just, you know, created this whole, like, you know, let's bring democracy to these Arab nations via social media. And it's much more complex than that. (laughs) Um, Because I think many of them are, are still very much struggling with similar issues 10 years ago today. Right.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and and you know, I just to give flesh to this idea a little bit, you know, I what I what I was seeing at the time and talking to you now, it's sort of bringing it back to life a little bit. But so you know, the uprising in Egypt in Cairo, again, we didn't see it coming. We things were, you know, Tunisia had had been unfolding. Mohamed Bouazizi, who's now this kind of mythical figure. Uh, who lit himself on fire in the, in the city of Sidi Bouzid on December 17th, 2010. Um, You know, that set in motion all the protests in Tunisia and elsewhere in Cairo, just even including close to where I was living uh, downtown, there were imitations of the self-immolation, you know, men uh, setting themselves on fire. And there was, it was this kind of strange sense that it was creeping across the border, but on the 25th, um, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't there wasn't uh, it, it was it was not the sort of mass uprising uh, that we now think about in retrospect. It was it was a I mean, it was about 15,000 people that they are, you know, we now think that uh, congregated arrived in Tahrir. Um, there was violent pushback from the police right away. But it was um, it wasn't clear that this was going to propel the end of a thirty year dictatorship. So I, you know, I'm in my apartment. Um, it, my uh, fiance at the time had actually just she'd never been to the Middle East, <laughs> and uh, she got on a plane from Seattle on on uh, January twenty sixth, so a day after the protests started. And I remember we spoke on the phone. She was in Vancouver and I said, uh, on on transfer, she said, you know, what's going on? I'm seeing on CNN that there's protests on, you know, in Egypt. I said, no, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to be anything big. You know, it's fine. No, you know, no restrictions. Um, So she gets there. The next day, basically, is January 28th, which becomes known as the Day of Rage, uh, the Jum'el Khadab, Friday of Rage. And this was the day that the Muslim Brotherhood joined the protests, um, you know, they had sort of out of respect, interestingly, for the anniversary of the police day, which was January 25th, uh, the historically the Muslim brotherhood a- had actually lost, they, they had lost, um, you know, members in early fighting on the, the police day was named after an anniversary of, uh, an early conflict between the British on, along the Suez canal, um, in the sort of, in the, in the days of decolonization back in the, in the early, in the late forties, I believe, early fifties, so the the Brotherhood, interestingly, you know they had fought alongside uh, Egyptian police uh, that were that were besieged by the British in uh, Ismailia, which is a Brotherhood stronghold. So they historically recognized the police to some extent. So they didn't participate on the 25th. On the 28th, uh, the Brotherhood comes and it, it just pops off and it becomes this giant, you know, really the, what we now think of as the occupation of Tahrir, uh, the shutdown of the city. It was also at this time that there was a information blackout. Um, that was imposed and that included taking Al Jazeera off the air, shutting down the internet, turning off cell phones. I write about in the book, um, you know, I, I actually, I went back and found the exact moment that the internet was shut down. I was in the middle of shooting off an email to these editors in Seattle that I was working with and saying, Hey, the internet is kind of chopping in and out, um, just in case here's a landline from my apartment. And it was like the last email I sent out before the internet, um, went down, (laughs) And, uh, you know, so it was, it it became, it became very chaotic and um, there was looting, there was, you know, quite a lot of violence, Molotov cocktails being thrown from adjacent rooftops to where we were living. Um, And, you know, but one of the, but it, it was, it was a discernible shift. I mean, you could tell a kind of the rhetoric that was, that was passing around, you know, that was in the, in the streets. I was hanging out at this coffee shop this whole time, which kind of operated uh, incognito behind shuttered doors and and meeting with locals and talking. And, you know, it had, it had flipped from this kind of um, from a, from a protest, you know, what they were talking about as a um, intifada, even a kind of a, kind of an uprising to uh, theuda to a, to a full-scale um, revolution. And so it was really, it was like really building, but at the same time already fomenting was this kind of counter-revolutionary um, rhetoric. And I, and I remember the moment uh, really almost specifically was, was a few days after the U.S. Embassy had evacuated everybody. We were still there. Um, you know, I was trying to do some reporting basically from Tahrir, interviewing some people. And one of the guys in this neighborhood that I had been in touch with were out walking and it was, uh, you know, it was nighttime. I was trying to get to the apartment of this, uh, German guy that I had was friends with and hadn't been in touch with since things started. And so, um, this young guy, Muhammad was walking me through the neighborhood because they, had all the neighborhoods, every neighborhood had set up these kind of checkpoints Uh, from almost block to block. And he said, uh, you know, Nate, you, he said, you got to be careful now because everybody's saying that all of this is happening because of the CIA, because of Americans, you know, and it was like, it was like right there that I go, you know, and that was, that was not present in the first, you know, first couple of days, first week almost.
0: So what, what brought that about then? Do you think, do you know?
1: That's what launched this book. That's really, and all of my subsequent research, because I've been, you know, I just, so we left, we ended up leaving uh, a group of guys that I had known, you know, that I'd been hanging out with for months, you know, including some ex um, um, military officials who lived in this apartment block where I, where I lived. It's actually right around the corner from the famed Jacobean building, if you know that novel. Uh, And, uh, you know, they came, it was, uh, it was like February Third, it was right, it was right after the battle, so-called battle of the camels, pounding on my door at three in the morning, you know, three thirty in the morning. My fiance is, you know, Liz, she's at this time my wife, she was scared out of her mind. You know, I was like, what the f- is going on here?
0: Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, you know, I mean, it's like 3:30 <laughs> in the morning. Chaos.
1: Yeah, and by the way, the police have been disbanded and there's like no clear, you know, legal like security apparatus. It's like the military are in, the police are gone. I mean, so it was, it was nuts. And, um, you know, so I like, I opened the door and I know these guys, right. These are guys I've been hanging out with for months, um, smoking shisha with and talking, you know, and they're very polite, but they're like, I had told my, I had told Muhammad the night before this kid that I was, that I mentioned or the night before, like two nights before I said, you know, I think we're going to leave. And I think that that sort of triggered a kind of suspicion on their part, um, so they came to the door three, you know, three, three thirty in the morning, pounding on the door and they say, you know, Nate, we won't, we got to see your passport, you know, it's for your own safety, you know, show us your paper, show us your pa- passport. And I mean, it was clear that they had become suspicious. Everybody was suspicious that, you know, an American in the area was, you know, part of some, you know, this covert clandestine operation to incite you know, the overthrow of the government. I mean, that was so, I mean, I kind of like gingerly kind of held the passport open and, you know, sort of showed them a few pages and, um, and we just, you know, we closed the door. I got it you know, closed the door and um, we, we were gone the next morning. We got a, we kind of snuck out, you know, 435 in the morning, took a taxi to the airport and just tried to get a, to get a plane. I mean, we were spooked. But so yeah, so for me it was like, what happened? How did it go? You know, why did this turn against? I mean, it really felt like it turned against me in a in a way. You know, it yeah. turned against. It
0: looks. Like, it sounds like, like you went from friend to foe to like Yeah, target. exactly.
1: And it was like, and so I think on a very personal level, you know, I, for years I've been thinking about like, like how what happened? Like how did that happen? You know, and um, so. I started writing this book, uh, really getting into the writing of it. Um, I did two other books, you know, sort of in advance and I'd sort of been putting this off. I mean, I kind of always felt like this was a book that I was going to write at some point that I was going to get into, but I'd been putting it off in part because it was really wound up with so much kind of personal, like anxiety in a way, you know, like, had I missed, you know, like I, so part of me wishes that I had stayed even longer, you know, and then part of me has always been like, well, this, this was clearly not our place to be, you know, um, as an American. It wasn't our revolution. It wasn't our place. And the journalists that were like descending on it, you know, were, I seemed kind of vulturous to me. Um, and so, but then it was also this main question of like, how, what turned these guys against me, you know? And, um, so I started writing this book in basically 2016, and the uh, the so the 2016 presidential election, and we're learning more and more about this kind of misinformation, disinformation, trolls and bots, and all this kind of stuff that we now have learned, you know, so much about. And I started thinking to myself, you know, like, God, a lot of this rhetoric is the same. A lot of the rhetoric that was kind of surrounding the early Trump campaign was this, this like virulent animosity towards the globalists, you know, George Soros, CIA, this kind of, you know, Western conspiracy for democracy, you know, Western conspiracy and all this kind of stuff, Um, liberal democratic conspiracies. I mean, there was that that sort of vibe has kind of always been around the Trumpism or, and it was, it was in 2016, we could see it. And I went back, um, and I started looking at some of the, some of the early news I had saved. One of the things I had done was I grabbed the local newspapers, um, from like every day of the uprising when I was there. Uh, you know, I said the internet was shut down, satellite TV, Al Jazeera was taken off. So the newspapers was really, and well, I have a chapter dedicated to it in the book. The newspapers were really like, suddenly became really relevant for people like living in Cairo. And in Egypt. Yeah, that's
0: super fascinating. And, yeah. it's, and it's great that you had the idea to to to, to take those on a basis. Right. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, it was
1: like, you know, I was kind of, I was doing this kind of like blow by blow thing for the Seattle Times and kind of talking. But I was also in my mind thinking, you know, someday clearly this is going to be this is, this is history in the making. So, right. So I was kind of like grab, I was collecting this. So I had this huge pile in my office in Fairfax, you know, of all these newspapers from like the first two weeks of the uprising in Egypt. And so I started going back into them and I was remembering, I was recalling, you know, things really changed on January 29th, which was the moment that the military was called in. It was the day after the brotherhood arrived it was the Friday of rage. The police are disbanded like that's That was a pivotal um, that was like a really pivotal moment where it sort of shifted from the, the sort of, quote unquote, Facebook youth, you know, and the rhetoric around those guys was interesting, too. They were like very clearly identified with like a neighborhood in Cairo, Heliopolis, as like upper class, you know, rich kids. That was the rhetoric I was hearing from people in like downtown Cairo, you know, and the Facebook, it was kind of non-threatening. It was kind of like whatever. It's kind of this experiment, you know. It's a social movement thing, but it's not populist. Anyhow, that shifted on the twenty eighth, and so I went back and I looked at the state, the major state-run newspaper from the 29th. Uh, it's Ahram. For you, some of your listeners will know it. Al Ahram is is the oldest um, state-run newspaper uh, in the Arab world, and it's it's always been understood as sort of an organ of the government in Egypt. And um so on the inside you know, like the sort of one of the main cover stories you know uh, from the 29th is a headline it's in arabic and i'm looking at it. it says um it's it's something to the effect of you know US secret US conspiracy to overthrow the government And in the article is, it's a, I I, I later found out it's a translation from, it's an exact translation from an article that appeared in the Oftenposten in Norway of all places. And it's about, it was a leak. It was a WikiLeaks article that had been farmed out to the Oftenposten in Norway. And it was a, from the so-called Cablegate, Cablegate of 2008, which was when WikiLeaks <clears throat> um gained access to uh you know volumes of confidential memos that had been sent uh from members of the US diplomatic corps. So uh you know the ambassador to Egypt, uh Margaret Scobie, who I who I ended up interviewing for this book, a lot of her email, not they were not emails, they're they're I forget what they call them, they're sort of telegrams. It's a system that the State Department uses but, you know, confidential, highly secure memos that had been um, that had been sort of grabbed, hacked by WikiLeaks and then were farmed out. And you'll remember this. This was in 2010 and it created all these huge diplomatic scandals. You know, Hillary Clinton uh, was all over it, sort of panicking as secretary of state. And it was right. all about, you know, all these diplomatic relationships that were blowing up because there was all that it was all this sort of insider talk about, you know, what. American diplomats, you know, really felt or what the, you know, about their, uh, you know, about their counterparts. Right. So, but one of the things that's interesting here, WikiLeaks on the eve of the Friday of Rage farmed out to a select group of news organizations, including, I believe uh, it was CNN, New York Times, um, often posts in, Poston in Norway and the daily telegraph in London, um, they farmed out or they gave, what I've later understood is that they had contacted the editors and then gave them access to the, to the leaks, um, at this basically specific scheduled time on the eve of, of the Friday of rage on the eve of the day that was going to launch the big revolutionary that did launch the big revolutionary moment, but they Um, planted at this time, um, these leaks and the leaks were from like 2008, 2009, you know, years before. mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, but so one of them that I found was, so there was the one in Ahram that was about um, it was a, it was a memo from SCOBY, uh, I believe the ambassador to Egypt talking about, um, the funding us funding of NGOs in Egypt that were like promoting democracy. And there was like a figure, it was like $140 million. And actually I think the $140 million was in the headline of this, uh, translated into, into Arabic of this article. And so, and then I was like, I was like, well, that's interesting because it really what it does is it sort of like colored the revolutionaries, right? It made it look like you know this the possible like, well, wait, is this organic? Is this an organic uprising? It is it is it a youth driven revolution or is the U.S. somehow involved? So I go back, so I keep looking around. I'm like, is this a thing? Is this was this really going on um, with WikiLeaks? You know, farming out. These leaks, you know, concerning U.S. funding for NGOs, you know, demo, you know, pro-democracy or whatever. The Daily Telegraph publishes at the same time on the eve of the revolution. It comes out, I think, you know, around midnight uh, on the eve of the Friday of Rage article, which I feature this on the back of the book. It says, you know, secret U.S. Uh, like what is it? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to read it exactly. Egypt protests, America's secret backing for rebel leaders behind uprising. And um, so in the article, it talks about, you know, how there had been members of the April 6th movement, which was kind of one of the lead, the vanguard groups of the, of the protests um, had been, had attended workshops in DC in 2008. Um, I don't know. They, they actually, I think, in this article, well, it led to the arrest of one of one member of the April Six Group uh, immediately. But it's 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 about it's this idea. They took a memo from Margaret Scobie from 2008, in which she basically says, you know, yeah, the April Six Group. Uh, I met with them, and they're going to go to these workshops, and they want to meet with you know other people, so and so, Albadadi, who was a who was a major opposition figure. And they want to organize, they want to organize to, um, protest, um, you know, to, to, to show up in the streets, uh, and to stop basically what was known as the secession plan or this idea that Mubarak was going to pass on the presidency to his son. So from 2008, but now here it is featured in a major international newspaper And right. It's kind of this. So it's like building this sort of stigma. And I'm thinking, this is really strange. And I just happened to be looking down and there's um, like 2,500 comments or something on this article. And I'm going through the comments and the rhetoric. Now, this is summer of 2016 when I'm doing this and writing this. And I'm going through it and the comments, I'm seeing all these comments like, This is what, see, this is what we get. The CIA trying to overthrow the Egyptian government. George Soros, you know, um, George Soros and the globalists, you know, are trying to install democracy in Egypt. And this is some, again, some of the rhetoric, some of these kind of keywords that were around the Trump campaign in 2016. I'm like, God, this is weird. And so I look at one of the commentators or a couple of the commentators And, and I started to do this kind of deep dive, you know, I went into the rabbit hole or whatever, looking, following, tracing some of these uh, comments, commentators from this, you know, this Daily Telegraph article from 2011 on the eve of the Friday of Rage. And a handful of them, I noticed, had like, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 comments across different platforms, an impossible number up until that time, 2016. So like within five years, they had this like impossible number of like comments across different media platforms. One of them I focus on in the book went by the name Tropic Girl and Tropic Girl was, I've since learned a troll who appears in 2016 pumping the same kind of misinformation around the Trump campaign that we now know as sort of historical fact, Um, you know, appearing on like on uh, publications like the, the Hill Breitbart news um, and always kind of pumping the same narrative, you know, like uh, that. And it was really demonizing Hillary Clinton in 2016. It was, you know, Clinton is a member of the brotherhood. Obama's a brotherhood member. Um, you know, Clinton is working, secretly working with, you know, George Soros and all these kinds of things. So in other words, the same disinformation strategy and in all likelihood, the, the same organization, the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, was operating at the opening salvo of the Arab uprisings in 2011. That has been something that analysts are looking at. I spoke with a senior analyst at the RAND Corps about this, who confirmed um, my own suspicion when he looked at the information, spoke with the ambassador, the American ambassador in Egypt at this time. And it really, in a way, it pushes back our understanding of Russia's global strategy. It's it's typically been identified with 2014 in the Crimea incident. Um, But, i think as it's clear and i make the case occasionally in this book but i'm really pursuing it more aggressively now after this book um since i I, having done some subsequent interviews that russia was deeply invested the kremlin was deeply invested in shifting the narrative of the arab uprisings trying to undermine the pro-democracy uh narrative in egypt in syria um in Libya and to uh subvert the struggle for democracy with the conspiracy of a western plot to instill these kind of you know uh puppet you know pro western puppet regimes uh around the region and so it sounds like <laughs> anyways that's that's <laughs> kind of it's yeah. a lie yeah I told you I could go on. So I'll
0: stop. (laughs) No, so I think, so when you're writing this book and and in reading this book, I I thought it was interesting that you really do bring, you know, you bring in Frederick Jameson, you talk even about like difference, you know, Jacques Jacques Derrida and and Walter Benjamin and and kind of bring in these these scholars in terms of really looking at the narrative and how the narrative is problematic and that narrative, uh, you know, is when we're looking at whether it's the the political narrative, there's multiple different narratives that are being constructed. Yeah, because, yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about how you see that narrative being problematic, uh, both in terms of what you just mentioned in on the, on the greater political sphere, like, Oh, Hey, this is a, this is the West, right? It's the CIA. Mm-hmm. And also right. on the ground, um, kind of like with your, with your experience, with your friends that all of a sudden, Mm-hmm. turned on you and targeted you. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's multiple narratives there. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, what, so part of it, it was just part of the book is this kind of, I mean, first of all, there's all these different case studies. So like the book, you know, the the issue about WikiLeaks and the, and the counter narrative, counter revolution, that's kind of like one slice of the book, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the main thread that connects this book is narrative and you know, how, to what extent does narrative alter or transform reality to, uh, to reinforce or propel certain ideological alliances? This was something I had looked at. I I had done a postdoc in strategic communications and, and so, you know, and and I'm very interested in how um, actually I think it's kind of an irony that despite the cacophony of the internet age, Uh, Or rather, in a sense, even because the cacophony of the Internet age, this um, the kind of information overload that everybody is subject to the sense of all these kind of multiple lines of information. What prevails through the cacophony are these big, bold, clear narratives. And um, so one of the things that and and that is and, and that does play into Jameson has a great quote. From uh, it was it's from his his book Marxism and Form, which came out in the early seventies, um, soon after the the May sixty eight events of May sixty eight, and he says something to the effect of um, uh, revolution um, times of revolution create narratable events. Um, it, it's the kind of unraveling of our of our daily routines, really, in a way the sense of Uh, a kind of clear cut um, path uh, for a nation and even for individuals when that's kind of thrown up for grabs. I mean, we're experiencing this, I think as Americans uh, and actually really around the world with COVID definitely. Um, But when things are really sort of scrambled in a sense, when, when the, the, the way that we've known the world to be all of a sudden seems to be not available. Like it's, it's up for grabs. It's in those moments that narrative can really grab hold of the imagination to kind of reorder our understanding of reality and to show a way forward in a sense narrative and the basic concept of narrative that I work with really comes out of I mean Jameson also uh, Ricoeur Ricoeur, and this idea um, that uh, Ricoeur makes the point that you know narrative is a sequence of beginning middles and ends I mean, full stop, that's it. It's about ordering reality into clear sequence of time, add protagonists and antagonists. And we have this kind of fabrication of reality that allows the mind to grab hold of it. So as a, you know, a literary person coming out of literature studies, this is, that's kind of what we always do when we're looking at, at, at works of fiction. Um, but I wanted to apply that to uh, public discourse um, to the public sphere, to different forms of media. And so, yes, using Jameson, Ricoeur, uh, Derrida, Différence, again, in the sense here, I mean, Derrida kind of s- takes it in a different direction if, if, if we're talking theory, I suppose, but um, the idea that Différence, you know, that, you know, that trying to, uh, you know, identi- label or, you know, name something for what it is, that it kind of it 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 makes it uh um it's you're actually you you're deferring its attainable meaning by trying to categorize it by trying to name it. I mean that's my off the cuff <laughs> description. Yeah, I
0: mean it, but, it really is. Yeah. I think uh, it it all of this is basically turning into a, like a Hollywood film that has a beginning, middle, and end.
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: Right. So that's I think that's what Jameson talks about, and yeah. this idea of différence is that you the meaning is always different and deferred so you can yeah like chasing something that you're never going to find
1: yeah (laughs) yeah
0: um which which is which is problematic i mean they're both uh, it's problematic to to really box things in but then how how do you explain to the globally what was happening you know have something like arab spring oh that sounds interesting because then you talk about the Prague spring right what was happening in um, Czechoslovakia and, and, you know, the, yeah. the
1: Serbia, uh, you mentioned
0: yeah. uh, you know, in 68 in Paris. And so mm-hmm. like we, we, as in society, it's just, it's easily to digest that information. And then of course, you know, then we have fake news, which has been around well, since information's been around, but sure. it has like, now it's, it, it's, we identify, it's there. It's like, now it has a title yeah I, I think
1: yeah for sure and and i think you know again i've used um the arab spring in this book as a way to kind of crystallize how narrative is affecting um in you know sort of lived experience in the information age and also geopolitical dynamics um i i think in sort of like stepping up going you know um, from the bird's eye view, looking back on, on this project and kind of where I'm moving now, I spoke with the, uh, undersecretary for state, uh, for public diplomacy, um, at the time that he was there from 2008, 2009, uh, James Glassman. And he was the one that had built this idea of what was called public diplomacy 2.0. The theory here, uh, from the state department was to convene bloggers. And so, see, here's the thing. There's an element of truth. And that's that's what's so important about, I think, disinformation and the power of narrative is that it builds on elements of truth, right? To take it in a direction, to take that information in a clear ideological direction. Public Diplomacy 2.0 was a thing. It did, bl- it did bring bloggers to D.C. It did convene them. It did give them some workshops and some training on how to conduct social media Um, operations, how to build networks, um, how to even get people in the street. And, you know, I spoke to him afterwards and I said, you know, do you feel like, I mean, can you claim, did you ever feel like you could claim some kind of victory that there was success in a way that the, that you had helped um, put together these social media networks that did indeed you know, spark in a way, launch the, the protests. I mean, certainly this is the case with Tunisia. I and mean, we. I don't think we have time to get into Tunisia too much here, but I mean, I think very clearly in the case of Tunisia, the cyber dissidents were really on the ground organizing, um, events and men and, you know, core members had been, had indeed received some training in DC, but the philosophy and I write about in the book, in the, in the sub-chapter called uh, Department of Structuralism in reference to the Department of State had been this idea, you know, DOS, department. so anyways, had been this idea um, of empowering people to tell their own stories. Stepping back, not labeling, not claiming, not owning um, the narrative, but just empowering bloggers to tell their own story. And it really actually coalesced I think explicitly with Obama's philosophy of leading from behind. It was this idea of putting bloggers out front, empowering new voices. Uh they worked with a group called uh there was members of a group called Global Voices which was became a bought out by Reuters and was on the ground to begin with and there was, you know, these networks of bloggers. So this idea of just letting people tell their own stories and creating a kind of pluralistic uh narrative in a sense, so not a fixed sort of like you know, fixed narrative um, that's sort of a centralized narrative, but rather this kind of like scattershot, buckshot, multiple perspectives, multiple voices. Um, You know, the critique has always been about the dissidents, the the cyber dissidents, the bloggers, that it wasn't clear what their vision was. It wasn't clear what their philosophy was. They were just kind of anti-censorship, you know, anti-police violence. And, you know, there was this. So one of the big critiques has been that they didn't have a kind of vision a philosophy to organize around flip to the other side, to the counter revolutionary narrative that emerges as I show in the very opening days of protests with WikiLeaks pumping, um, you know, reframing information from 2008 and the troll armies, most likely part of the IRA pumping a very specific and ultimately centralized narrative that has been deployed around the globe. This idea, um, you know, which was deployed against Hillary Clinton by the Trump campaign, that there is a sort of secret globalist cabal, you know, um, it's anti-Semitic, it's, um, you know, it's sort of, we saw it, It surrounded, there was information operations surrounding the Black Lives Movement as well, to the same effect, that very consistent counter-narrative which we now know has been fueled primarily by the Kremlin and deployed against social social movements around the globe, that's that kind of singular, bold narrative that seems to cut through the cacophony. And I think, sadly, one of the big um, takeaways from the Arab Spring has been, or one of the big results of the Arab Spring, um, which I, I think it's... Parallel to, but different from this idea of an Arab winter, is the Russian pivot. This I the now dominant presence of Russia in the Middle East, the the profound alliance now with Russia and Syria, which was known, but also Egypt, what we see them doing in Libya, um, the relationship between the Kremlin and Saudi and the Emiratis, collaborate. I mean, so, and the US, meanwhile, just completely like taken out of the picture. Um, you know, in part because of this active, you know, proactive, uh, withdrawal and, you know, and the Trump Trumpism and protectionism and all that anyway. So it does come down to narrative, I think in the sense, and I, I have a kind of a cynical vision, uh, of how narrative functions in the information age. And I think uh, we're. I've. I don't know. I think we're seeing this play out now in Africa. I think the French are picking up. They're trying to mimic um, the Russian strategy of fabricating, uh, uh re uh, fabricating information, fabricating news to create more bolder counter narratives that will cut through uh, the cacophony of of the information age. Um. So that's yeah. That's kind of in my headspace with this book.
0: Yeah. So. In terms of looking at the narrative, I mean, do you think, um, and you mentioned him uh, before and you start the book talking about Mohamed Wazizi and how he set himself on fire yeah. uh, at the end of 2010. And certainly, um, you know, he became highly symbolic uh, for, you know, and, and a catalyst for kind of the events.
1: Definitely.
0: How do you see this kind of narrative fitting in perhaps with the idea that, quote, people want or need a hero. So again, going back into like the Hollywood, the hero's journey, the protagonist, the antagonist.
1: It's That strikes right at the heart of it, uh, Marcy. And I think that that's really, um, I, I see the Boazizi, the myth of Boazizi as one of like the most important narratives to come out of the Arab Spring. And a, it was ultimately, it was sort of the, um it's the origin story, right, of the, of the Arab Spring in many ways. And it was one of the big success stories for the cyber dissidents. This was a case, this was a um, Muhammad Bouazizi, the story that became his story um, was really uh, birthed by the cyber dissident network. You had on the ground in Sidi Bouzid, Sofian um, who raced up to Tunis on the the night after Bouazizi lit himself on fire with a flash drive because there was a media blackout imposed on Sidi Bouzid, and he's putting his information up online onto Facebook. And then you have Bouazizi's cousin who goes onto Facebook and it kind of gets and the story of him lighting himself on fire gets picked up by. The New Media Desk at Al Jazeera, um, which included Yasmin Ryan, who was a reporter for Al Jazeera English, who was the first one to kind of break the story on the um, the organizing effect of the cyber dissidents. And she interviews Sophie and Sharabi, and she interviews Lena Ben-Meheny. Lena Ben-Meheny was part of the cyber dissident collective of the Tunisians. She's associated with the group Global Voices, um, the group N- Nawat. And uh, Ben Maheny is writes a post on Global Voices that was the earliest full description of Boazizi's uh, martyrdom, and she adds, she includes in this uh, in this post for Global Voices, which comes out just a couple of days after he lights himself on fire, uh, a description of him being a university graduate. Um, we since learned that that was not true. I mean, he was he was actually a high school dropout. Um, but the inclusion of that factoid, I suggest, was really important because it, it it suggested a kind of classic Aristotelian tragedy, this kind of fall, you know, somebody who had worked hard, who was, you know, he had gotten a college degree and he couldn't get a job. And it kind of, it sort of um, grabbed the attention, I think, of a lot of like-minded organizers on social media that really sort of captured the heartstrings. And Lena Ben-Mehenny, um, so later talked about how it was that you know it was this idea that he was a university graduate that because other people had killed themselves in Sidi Bouzid it had happened before there had been other co- similar protests before um, uh, and she said but it was this factoid that he had been a university graduate uh, that really sort of like mobilized her mobilized her generation um, you know stri- striking this emotional chord. And, you know, one of the reasons that I, so, and I, I, I can't let this, uh, let our, our episode here end without mentioning that three of those names that I just referred to, Lena Ben Mahoney, Sophie and Shodabi, and Yasmeen Ryan have now all died and all in their late thirties. Um, the Sophie and Shodabi was one of the people that had been identified as having attended the DC workshops Lena Ben Maheny also was a Fulbright to the United States 2008-2009 and had been part of the Alliance for Youth Summit, the workshops, to some extent. I don't know the full details. They were virulently attacked by trolls, the counter-revolutionary narrative that was flowing from the Kremlin, flowing from the uh, old regimes to demonize the, the bloggers as U.S.-backed, even though, you know, they're... Their backing was minimal at best. Um, Anyhow, so the circumstances of their deaths are different. Ben Maheni, we we think, died from complications. I guess from what I understand, it's complications uh, surrounding uh, organ transplant. Sophie and Sharabi was abducted in Libya. We don't know what happened to him. And Yasmin Ryan fell off a building in Istanbul a couple years ago um, to mysterious circumstances. She had been the Al Jazeera reporter. That was that had reported on the the cyber dissidents. Well, they reported. She quoted some of the cyber dissidents, but reported on Ben Ali, the Tunisian regime's um, blackout strategy and, and media crackdown strategy. So, you know, it's 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 kind of all mysterious, and it does lend itself again. And also, that's the other thing: when there's so much information around and all these different kind of things, and you don't you know one. I I including myself here, you don't know what reality to grab onto. And, uh, it's easy to grab onto conspiracy theories and big, bold narratives. So try to be cognizant of that as well. Um, yeah,
0: I, I, yeah. I agree. Cause you have these, this is where postmodernism com, comes in, right. Where they're just like, oh, we have these grand meta narratives that claim yeah. to profess one universal truth. And well, that's, that it's far more complex than that because there's, there could be, you know, we could argue that truth is relative and, and contextual, um, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, like with my students, when I've taught journalism in the past, that's a common question that they have, that they legitimately want to know how to, um, you know, or they want to know like what the right media is to consume, and they're just exhausted. They're just like, I don't want the left, I don't want the right, can we just have like neutral news? Like news right. that just reports the news, so I think they just get exhausted. I think as society we get exhausted as to like, well, yeah, these are all narratives. Which one do we listen to? What's real? What's not real? Um, and the Arab Spring is such a perfect example of something that can just go in so many different directions. It's a very complex thing, right. uh, but can really, Absolutely. yeah, it can really have this, this, you know, all these multiple narratives that, in Ratholic some ways, I think, way. yeah. yeah, they can actually be detrimental to the cause as well as helpful to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you, you end the book. I mean, we, we barely scratched the surface. Your book is extremely rich, but I think it's, it's interesting that you, you do kind of bring it around and you end the book on a note about fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and about film and, and narrative. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. The last, the last chapter um, deals with uh, two you know, specifically fictional genres. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It is the idea was to sort of, you know, throughout the book, I'm looking at the fictionalization of reality in a sense, um, the degree to which, you know, narrative has grabbed hold of reality and filtered it into these kind of ideological platforms, ideological alliances. Um, but with the end of the book, I, I, um, I wanted to look at fiction specifically and, and and one of this kind of new fictional genres that really takes off after the Arab spring, which is science fiction. Um, And uh, so the, you know, the history of of science fiction in the Arab world is very interesting. It's a, it's a very short history, but one of the, it, it became this interesting kind of like point of synthesis, I think looking at Arabic science fiction in particular, the work, Of really the most popular writer in Egypt, a man named um, Ahmed Khaled Taufik, uh, who died recently in 2018. Um, Because much of his fiction, first of all, his most famous book is this novel called Utopia, which is this incredible kind of genre bending sort of horror sci-fi. It's about a future Cairo that's kind of split into two worlds between a uh, a rich upper class enclave of heavily drugged uh, cannibals, basically, who descend on the old Cairo and the world of the others to hunt for body parts as, as these kind of tokens. And it's extremely dark. But running through that novel and some of his subsequent novels is this very cynical approach to technology this very cynical approach to in, in particular sort of like social media technology, communications technology. Um, and uh, the sense that um, in, in science fiction of Ahmed Khaled Taufik, and actually I found it throughout uh, the, the short history of Egyptian science fiction in particular um, has been this kind of uh, cynicism, uh, this skept- this fear of uh, imported, new technologies um the association of those imported new technologies with you know western conspiracies um and the sense that there's this that they create this kind of detachment um, from lived experience and you know offer all these kind of um you know fantastic and horrific you know futures uh in which you know people that, that what his novel that comes out after the arab spring um, which, is, which is called uh, Mytho Icarus, or Like Icarus. Uh, it has not been translated, and uh, that's something that needs to happen. But it's about a man who, not unlike the internet in his brain, gains this kind of infinite uh, access to infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, and he goes back in time and, and into the future kind of solving problems. But he also is driven insane by it, by this kind of information Overload, and so I, I thought that it was a um, a fitting way to kind of close out this book, the fictionalization uh, or the actual fictional engagement with the uh, perceived fictionalization of reality that is the information age.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it was it was uh, really as somebody who studies and teaches film, I I definitely uh, appreciate uh, you know the. the Talking about the narrative throughout your book and certainly kind of ending, ending on that and just, and seeing that there's, um, there's so many of these narratives like fictional narratives and um, that are, you know, film is so dominated by the West, but we forget how much richness in, in fictional narratives there are outside of the West so much. Um, yeah. And so yeah. that's 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 great. Um, well, Nate, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but as we wrap up, I'm um, I'm curious to know you. I think you briefly mentioned what are you currently working on. What what's what's next for you after this?
1: Well, I've, I've got an article coming out now um, called American Spring. And uh, I just, to my great chagrin, I just noticed that that's a trending on Twitter. But, you know, it's always the case. <laughs> you submit an article <laughs> a month ago and all of a sudden it's trending on Twitter. But the trending on Twitter is relating to the siege of the Capitol, which is wrongheaded. That's not, that's the counter-revolution. We're seeing what we saw in the Capitol is, a, I think, in some respects, a response to the Black Lives Matter movement of the summer. So I have an article coming out uh looking at how uh Russian state media in particular spun the Black Lives Matter movement through their vast media apparatus in the Arab world, the Arabic speaking um uh, media apparatus of the uh, from the Russian state RT and Sputnik. And um so you know, staying on this on this uh topic from the book in the sense that, you know, I'm um uh the election of Donald Trump pissed me off, like a lot of us, <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm in the camp that feels that he was he was aided and abetted tremendously um, by the Kremlin. So I've sort of I, I've I'm I'm staying uh, focused on this issue, and uh, so that's that's the main thing. I'm also working on a new book with a colleague, uh, Walid um, looking at. Also, uh, going back a little bit and looking at, uh, U S, um, counter communication strategy in the war on terror and, uh, some of the digital networks that came out of the counterterrorism campaigns, um, from the mid, uh, mid knots. Uh, so those books, and then, I don't know, I'm a comparative literature person by training. So I'm always all over the place. I'm doing this media stuff, the security stuff. Uh, and I really want to, uh, I really want to do a translation, you know, of some obscure Arabic novel. Maybe I'm going to call it Myth of Icarus, but we'll that's see. awesome.
0: Yeah, well, great. You, you're keeping busy. Um, keep me posted on on your your next book publication, then we can have you back on, and and chat with you again. So it sounds really very unique approach to the book. You know, having the the personal experience and the, um, the academic experience. So. Thank you again for joining us, Nate. Um, Marcy,
1: thanks so much. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was was really awesome chatting with you. And thank you all for listening, uh, everyone. Uh, Until next time, uh, cheers. Cheers.